today on Blue 58. Training camp has sparked a lot of questions among Blue 58 listeners, and we've got a bunch of them lined up for today. Is Brian Gutekunst an outlier among NFL GMs? Can we find good things to say about Joe Barry? And which offensive player is in danger? Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. I've got like a dozen questions that I want to talk through today from a bunch of different listeners and readers, from Discord, from email, from all over the place. But first, the Packers are making some more moves, bringing in one edge rusher, getting rid of another, Aaron Mosby. Or Aron Mosby? I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation, but the Packers signed Mr. Mosby, another edge rusher, six foot three, two hundred and fifty pounds, to fill a spot on their roster. Three nine six relative athletic score, mostly due to the fact that he's on the small side for a defensive end or an edge rusher. Why is he on the small side? Well, he took an interesting path to the edge in the NFL. He's a converted defensive back in college, played defensive back his first two years in college, a hybrid linebacker of sorts the next two, and then more traditional defensive end for his final year in college. He was with the Panthers last year. Apparently, according to Bill Huber of Sports Illustrated, the Packers really wanted to sign him after the 2022 NFL draft. We're not able to match what the Panthers could offer in terms of guaranteed money. $95,000 is nothing to sneeze at. He ended up appearing in three games for the Panthers last year, two snaps on defense, 33 on special teams, and there is your roster path. So quick, rack your brains if you hadn't heard the news already. Whose roster spot is he going to be taking? Think of a smallish edge that primarily plays special teams. Jonathan Garvin is not in town. The winner of the no prize is Ladarius Hamilton. He is released after a couple years now with the Packers himself, once a practice squad signing coming over from Tampa Bay to Green Bay in the 2021 season. The end of the line appears to be here for Ladarius Hamilton as far as his time in Green Bay goes. But that's how we know really what Mosby's roster path is. He's a guy who played a little bit on the edge and played primarily special teams. Ladarius Hamilton played a little bit on the edge, but primarily special teams. You see the fit there. The Packers just looking for something slightly different. And with Mosby going on waivers... The Packers had the opportunity to get somebody they'd liked after last year's draft. I'm going to jump right into our Patreon shoutouts at this point, just because we've got so many different questions to talk about. I want to make sure that we don't get distracted and miss them. Today, I'm shouting out patrons Craig Gerritsen, Leonidas Pereira, or Leonidas, I think if you go with the ancient Greek pronunciation, and John Hurd. Appreciate each of you uh, for your support on Patreon and hope to reward you with some great bonus content here in the next couple days or with just uh, some more time to hang out in the Blue 58 Power Sweep Discord server. Great place to check out uh, all sorts of Packers content from all over the, the internet and connect with Packers fans from all over the world. American Packers fans, British Packers fans, Australian Packers fans, Serbian Packers fans, all of them in there, as well as a couple of Swedes in there too. Blue 58 does really well in Sweden, uh, if you didn't know. Pretty cool. Shout out to all the Swedish listeners out there. Uh, But if you are a Patreon supporter, you can hang out with everybody from all over the world, talk Packers, and whatever else is on your mind in there, too. Check it out, patreon.com slash thepowersweep. All of the relevant links are in the notes for this episode. So your questions. It's been a long time since we've done an episode pretty much entirely devoted to questions, We've had a bunch of them pile up, some really interesting thoughts um, from a bunch of our listeners, either in our Discord server or elsewhere. 
I'm just going to get through many, as many of these as we can. And they, they're going to take us all over the Packers roster, front office, some even some NFL draft history. So here we go. The first question comes from Gabe's MSU 11, who says, I'm having trouble being optimistic about this group of pass catchers on the team just due to their inexperience. Has there ever been a playoff team with the, the youth uh, this young of a receiving core? My biggest concern for this season is if by the end we still don't know much about love because of the receiving room. I want to answer the second part first there, or address the second part first there. I think we're still going to know a lot about Jordan Love, regardless of how this receiver room operates, because I think we'll be able to tell quite a bit about how Love handles the offense and the things that he's doing, um, regardless of the, the overall talent level of this receiving room. I think the way that the LaFleur offense is set up, really the entire Shanahan tree offense, you should be able to run it with some subpar receivers, put it that way, with guys that are not necessarily Devontae Adams. The the real appeal of having the Shanahan-style offense with Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams is that you could build, in theory at least, all of the stuff that the Shanahan tree brings you in terms of scheming guys open, attacking different parts of the field, uh, motion, bootlegs, the run game, all of that, and marry it to a couple of ultra high-end skill position players. You've got Aaron Rodgers, maybe the best quarterback ever at identifying you know, mismatches and taking advantage of them, especially when he's got a guy like Devontae Adams uh, to work with. And then you've got Devontae Adams, a walking mismatch in and of himself, who can attack a defense from all over the field. That should should and was, should have been and was a great comparison, or not a great comparison, a great combination but in theory, at least, you should be able to run the offense with a bunch of just no-name guys. The schemes, the, the the route combinations, the thing that you're using in this offense should get you openings regardless of how good these individual guys are. And on top of that, the Packers receivers just have speed the likes of which we haven't seen in a long, long time. A decade at least, I think, since you've had anything comparable to this amount of speed in this Packers receiving room, and tight ends as well. So I think just from that perspective, it's not really going to stop us from getting a good look at Jordan Love. It's going to be more about how he executes than guys getting open. Once he gets the ball you know, out of his hands, he can't go out there and catch it for him. But I don't think that is going to stop our eval on Jordan Love. However, to the, the, the first part of that question, I can't think of one, and I wasn't able to find a comparable playoff team which is with a, as much youth at receiver as the Packers have. Certainly, shoot, I don't know if, you know, dating back to the Favre era, I don't know if the Packers have ever gone into a season with a receiving room that is quite this young. Even when, like, 2003, 2004, whatever, I, I might be wrong in the year 2002, 2003, when you've got like second year Javon Walker, third year Robert Ferguson, they still had Donald Driver. They still had, you know, for the 2002 season, at least Terry Glenn. Just this much youth at once when Christian Watson and Dobbs or Romeo Dobbs and Samori Ture are your elder statesmen in that receiving room. There just hasn't been that kind of receiving corps. People don't build their receiver rooms that way. It just really isn't done. 
So even if I, if there's one with comparable youth, you'd almost be certain that they're not a playoff team just because that's generally just not how it works. But I want to also say that I think that it's a totally fair conclusion to be concerned about this receiver room. It's not fashionable to really be negative at this point of the season. Like there are people who are down on Jordan Love or down on the Packers overall, and there may be some pre-existing things baked in there, people who have never liked Jordan Love, people who are just upset that the Aaron Rodgers era is over. Maybe maybe you're one of those people, maybe you have at least sympathized with them. If you are, that's fine. Uh, but it's not overall fashionable to just be like not sure or not convinced that these guys are going to be good. But I want to say, if you are skeptical of this receiver room, I think that's totally fair because baked into this idea that the Packers are just going to take a step forward at receiver because Watson and Dobbs are going to take a step forward is a pretty, pretty big assumption. Yes, Christian Watson had a really spectacular rookie season. I think overall you could say it was a really great rookie year, even on that first play drop. I mean, it's a it's a big miss. The drop is is obviously the worst possible outcome there. But if that's the last third of the play, the first two thirds being the release off the line and then just outrunning an NFL caliber defensive back, he passed those first two with flying colors right off the bat. He was he was ready to go. So I mean, overall the it only got better from there. Yes, it was a spectacular rookie season. Past performance is not always an indicator of future success. It's possible that Christian Watson's success may have had something to do with Aaron Rodgers or the combination of Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Jones and a whole host of other things that have nothing to do with Christian Watson. Or he just may have been the very best he's ever going to be as a rookie. We don't know that for sure, but you are projecting a little bit that he's going to take a step and it's not necessarily going to be that way with all the other factors coming into play this year, the, the league getting the book on him after seeing him for a whole year. There's a lot of people who seem really high on Romeo Dobbs. That I think is fair. I think there's reason to be skeptical about Romeo Dobbs too. I don't know if I'm, I'm there with you on Watson not taking a step forward. I think he will, or Dobbs being just you know, not that great. I'm a little bit more bearish, I think, than most on him. But I think both assuming that both of them are just going to be better than they were last year and that the rookie tight ends are going to come in and the offense is going to be fine. And then guys behind Watson and Dobbs are going to take steps forward too. There are a lot of stacked assumptions there. And I think that if, if you're just skeptical of that whole picture, I think that's totally fine. And if you're worried about what it says about Jordan Love, I would maybe caution against that a little bit, but I don't think you're entirely off base either. It's possible it could affect Jordan Love too. Ray asks, is Gutekunst, Brian Gutekunst, an outlier as a GM in quote-unquote keeping his guys? It's a notable characteristic of Gutekunst, but it also seems to be a common-sense approach that most general managers would be more favorable to the guys they've actually selected in the draft good question here. And it's something we've talked about a lot over the past couple of seasons. Brian Gutekunst kept all of his draft picks from the 2022 draft class last year for the entire season. And he's in position to do the same again this year. I don't think all 13 of the draft picks are going to make the 53-man roster, but it's certainly possible. 
to Ray's question here, that's hard to verify. You'd have to look at every GM on all 32 of the NFL teams, or at least the GMs that have been with their teams long enough to at least have kept some of their guys. But if I had to guess, I'd say he's not really much of an outlier. If there is an area where Gutekunst is probably an outlier over the past couple of seasons, it's probably just the sheer number of draft picks he has made for the Packers. Packers have drafted 24 guys between 2022 and 2023. That's a lot. And there are very few teams that are going to be able to boast that kind of numbers, just raw numbers coming into their roster. The Vikings had like 15 picks in a class, I think maybe in 2021. I'd guess the Packers, even with the Vikings in there with 15 picks, are probably near the top end uh, in terms of the overall number of picks made too. You just tend to keep those guys. And it's understandable, I think, as to why. You've invested the most resources, the most time. They're just more expensive to get rid of in the short term and even in, in the long term in some cases than undrafted free agents. And on top of that, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing to be a little bit more loyal to your draft picks. The hit rate on non-drafted players is not terribly high. You don't have a lot of undrafted free agents coming in and, for one thing, making rosters. uh, For another, just turning into long-term contributors. If you're just keeping your draft picks, you're probably not necessarily missing out on all that stuff. Where you might have some questions about Gutekunst's approach is when he seems to put guys on the roster who he drafted and then just doesn't do anything with them. Rasheed Walker and Jonathan Ford are two pretty big examples from last year. They made the roster and then kind of just sat there all season long. They took up two of their 53 roster spots without really doing anything at all last year. You were holding down two spots that you could have used to churn another position. For instance, uh, we talked about last year how the Packers had these issues on the defensive line, but they didn't really even seem to want to try anybody else. They were holding this roster spot for Jonathan Ford, but they also had Chris Slayton and for part of the season Jack Heflin on the roster too. I don't know if they're, either of those guys would have fixed what went on with the Packers' run defense last year, but they never got an opportunity to try. And part of the reason that they never had an opportunity on the Packers roster is they didn't have the spots available to churn when you've got spots taken up by guys that are just there for a red shirt year. That may be a situation where Gutekunst is an outlier, and that is a situation where you have to ask if that's the best utilization of those spots that you have. I haven't looked into it enough to come to a firm conclusion there, but that does strike me as an area where Gutekunst is probably a little bit of an outlier. Carl Anderson, and this this question came in a while ago. We've just had a chance to get to it now. Uh, But he says, bad time with regard to the offensive line episode already being out, our offensive line preview. But it struck me when I listen with uh, no big dog, no Mercedes Lewis on the field this year, who effectively was a sixth offensive lineman. Would you predict that this year's version of the Green Bay Packers will field six linemen on a regular basis? For example, like five snaps per game. And in that case, who do you predict the sixth lineman is? This is a bit of an unusual question, but I like the creative approach. I don't think we're going to see six linemen with regularity, though if I had to pick one, the Packers have two pretty ready-made candidates here. Uh, Whoever ends up being their sixth offensive lineman, and their sixth sixth offensive lineman, excuse me, got really caught up in the excitement over the the possibility of a, a sixth lineman there. 
Uh, the sixth lineman is probably going to be either Zach Tom or Yash Nyman, depends, depending on who, how the competition shakes out at right tackle or at center. Either of those guys would be a great fit as a nominal tight end in some of the heavy packages that you can run. To make another reference to the early 2000s Green Bay Packers, in the 2003-2004 season, the Packers regularly ran a package called the U-71 package, where they brought enormous backup tackle Kevin Berry onto the field as a quote-unquote tight end to just run ultra-heavy power runs, uh, usually off the right side. Not the most enormously creative thing, but they at least tried to do something different, and it seemed to work fairly well. I don't think the Packers are going to go that route. I don't think there's really any reason to. I think the overall benefit of going with a sixth offensive lineman that is just a lineman is outweighed by the fact that you're really telegraphing your your intentions. However, I do think that the Packers are going to be more creative just by necessity with how they block around their tight ends. Now, I know I went on a long kind of digression in the last episode about how blocking for tight ends doesn't necessarily matter. I still don't think it does, but you still have to be able to handle the responsibilities that you do have as a blocking tight end. And I think to the extent that concerns about someone like Luke Musgrave really have some legitimacy, it's wondering whether or not he can even hold up to the very nominal blocking duties that a NFL tight end has. So I think the Packers, when they do have a tight end on the line of scrimmage in the Mercedes Lewis type role, looking to get a solid block from their tight end, and there are going to be times when that happens, they're going to have to be a little bit more creative about how that works. Maybe you have more situations where the tight end is not on the strong side of the formation as the Y, but maybe on the weak side of the formation. I'm thinking in a very like classic zone run, instead of having your tight end on the strong side of the formation where the run is going like they would do at times with Mercedes Lewis, have somebody like Luke Musgrave on the backside. Now, backside blocks are important in a scheme like this, but you don't have to hold the point of attack the same way that you do when you're on the strong side. And that's something that Mercedes Lewis could do. I'm not sure either Luke Musgrave or Tucker Kraft can do that at this point in their career. And I think the Packers are just going to have to be more creative with how they use them rather than bringing on a sixth offensive lineman. Good thought, uh, good creative question, though. Queso asks, here's a very off-season type of question. No worries, we will take any type of question at any time. How exactly are NFL transactions transmitted? I have heard people speak of a transaction wire, but I'm not really sure how much of that is a figure of speech. Is news just proliferated through agents and teams out to media outlets, or do some media outlets, like Ian Rappaport, for example, have a direct line on this? Good question. The machinations of the transaction wire are a little bit mysterious sometimes, and it's easy to wonder how certain guys are finding out certain things. Really, there are two ways that this kind of news breaks. There is an NFL actual transaction report breakdown that gets sent out to anybody on a media email list at the end of every league day. So once all the transactions are processed, uh, they you know compile the big list. So-and-so was waived by this team. They signed this guy, blah, blah, blah. And it all gets sent out via email to everybody who is interested in receiving such things. Once you're on the list, you get this email. And that's why you'll see guys like Aaron Wilson, for instance, the NFL reporter, just tweet out, line by line by line by line, exactly what every team did in the NFL transaction report. It's a good gig for him, smart way to generate some Twitter followers, 
somebody else with access to that email list probably should do likewise. So that's really the transaction wires. Teams do their official paperwork. It all goes to the NFL, you know, via fax or computer system. Well, it would have been fax in the old days. Now it's all done by computers. They process all the transactions, and the summary of those transactions goes out to all the media people who are signed up to receive it. Now, there is something different here. When it's somebody like Ian Rappaport or Adam Schefter breaking news ahead of that transaction summary being released, what has almost always happened 99 times out of 100, maybe even more than that, uh, maybe even more frequently than that, is a guy has been told that he is going to be cut prior to all that stuff being being processed, da-da-da-da-da. If the thing is set to get submitted to the league at 3 p.m. Eastern time, this guy gets told to turn in his playbook in the morning. What has happened when a guy like Ian Rappaport or Adam Schefter or whoever is breaking that news is that player has told his agent that he's been cut, or more likely the GM has told the agent that that player has been cut. The agent has turned around and texted Adam Schefter just to give you an example here. Hey, my guy's been cut. Uh, and Adam Schefter will send out that news. Now, if he's really doing a favor for the agent, he will massage that that message a little bit. And you see this a lot with guys trying to cultivate and protect and enhance their relationship with their sources. If a guy is really trying to do something like that, he won't just say so-and-so has been cut, blah, blah, blah. What he'll say is something like, uh, the Green Bay Packers have decided to release just just use a recent example. The Green Bay Packers have decided to release Jonathan Garvin. You know, cutting him now gives him a chance to catch on with a number uh, with a with a young or with another team. A young, you know, promising edge rusher with some NFL experience looks to contribute wherever he can. What's happening there is Adam Schefter is doing a favor to a player's agent. He is, you know, juicing the story a little bit just to say here's not just a guy getting cut but here's a a promising young player who the Packers thought so much of but just didn't have a roster spot available for that they wanted to cut him now so that they're giving him a chance to catch on with another team I'm not saying that's what happened with with Garvin but that thing that sort of thing does happen that is the other thing that Queso is getting at here when somebody like Rappaport or Schefter breaks a story ahead of that transaction wire stuff coming out this is what has happened and sometimes you can see the relationship-enhancing aspect of that report play out here. Old Packers fans, or old Packers fan asks which projected or incumbent starters on offense or defense are at risk of losing their jobs. Josh Myers seems to be vulnerable, as does John Runyon Jr. Not many others are going to come out of the lineup without an injury. Would love to hear any thoughts. Honestly, on both sides of the ball. I think Myers and John Runyon Jr. are probably just about it. And it looks like Myers may actually be in a little bit of a danger here after looking through most of the offseason and even to the start of training camp. Like there really wasn't going to be a battle on the offensive line, well, at least at his offensive line spot at all. But now Zach Tom is getting reps with the ones. Josh Myers is having problems snapping the ball, it, it appears, or, or at least inconsistencies snapping the ball. There seems to be a, a real, true competition going on at center. He is probably fairly vulnerable. If not for Myers, I would say John Runyon Jr. would probably, you know, be slightly in the crosshairs as well. I think he has gotten a couple bumps to his reputation first by just being fairly reliable, if not spectacular, and secondly, 
uh, just being not Royce Newman on the Packers offensive line. When there's somebody worse than you, it's good to, it's easy to feel or to look good by comparison. Runyon falls into both of those camps. He's been super reliable in, in terms of availability since he stepped into the lineup. And he's had at times a guy who's been significantly worse than he is, despite not necessarily being a world beater himself. In a, in a normal year, if the Packers had everything locked up everywhere but right guard, if Josh Nyman was, was, had that right tackle job locked up, if uh, Josh Myers was rock solid at center, you'd probably be seeing some competition from Zach Tom at right guard, maybe some competition from Sean Ryan, and there may even still be something happening there regardless of how uh, Runyon may have the job locked up. I don't think he should feel as though he has a firm 100% grasp on that job because the Packers are committed, as Lafleur says again and again and again, to get their best five guys out there. He may not be one of those best five guys. On defense, I would say Eric Stokes, but he's hurt. Other than that, Jaron Reed is out of town. Dean Lowry is out of town. Their spots, which would have been probably contested a little bit on the defensive line, are up for grabs. Other than that, the only real you know roles that are available on offense are a safety next to Darnell Savage, which is going to be open regardless because Adrian Amos is gone. And then what? Uh, maybe another linebacker spot, the third linebacker spot between behind Devondre Campbell and Quay Walker. There's an edge rusher job available right now, but it's going to be Rashawn Gary's when he comes back, and he's not losing it, and Preston Smith isn't losing his job, at least not right now. Lucas Van Ness may take it at some point in the future. Other than that, Alexander's not coming off the field at corner. Rasul Douglas is not coming off the field. There really aren't that many open positions or or position battles available. So I think it's probably uh, a combination of their – really not being that many available jobs on defense. And a lot of the guys carrying over from last year really are pretty established on offense. You've got guys like Aaron Jones, David Bakhtiari, Elton Jenkins. Nobody's taking their jobs. And other than that, everybody else is so new, uh, there really can't be much turnover anyway. Janelle asks, what players that are on the bubble are you rooting for that will show up in training camp and preseason, making it hard for Brian Gutekunst to cut them? I have a few. Bo Melton, Austin Allen, Caleb Jodes, Jonathan Ford, and Tyler Goodson. You might notice I picked all guys that had either size or speed. Astute observation there, Janelle, and I think you're on the right track picking guys that can do either one or both of those things. Austin Allen, certainly very big. Caleb Jones, certainly very big. Jonathan Ford, certainly very big. And Tyler Goodson, well, not big, quite fast. If I had to pick a couple of guys, Austin Allen would probably be on there as well. Uh, Bo Melton and Tyler Goodson on my list too. But to expand things out a little bit more, I'm really going to be rooting for Carrington Valentine. I think that he's got an opportunity to really do something interesting in the secondary. Beyond the Packers' top three or four guys, there there could be some opportunities there at corner. Shamar John Charles made the roster last year. There is a roster spot at least available pretty far down the depth chart to be sure, but Valentine seems like a better option there. Uh, I like Alex Magoo as a cool story. It would be fun to see him make a run from the USFL to being the Packers' second-string quarterback, or maybe if they keep three, which would be a little bit weird, but you never know, being on the 53-man roster. And, of course, I've talked about how I think Kadeem Telfort is the most interesting of the Packers' undrafted free agents this year. That hasn't changed. Uh, I'm going to be rooting for him, if only 
uh, so he can continue to be a professional football player and doesn't have to go back and hang out with his nine sisters. Prayers for that man. Uh, that's, that's a lot to deal with for anybody. Uh, Janelle also asked, what are the responsibilities of team captains? And we've got a few more questions here, but I'm seeing the length of this episode already. We're closing in on half an hour. We might have to leave those for next time. So maybe we won't get to talk about much for, for Joe Barry. We'll see what kind of time we get here. Anyway, Janelle asks, what are the responsibilities of team captains? Team captains are largely symbolic, but I think you can look at them as a sort of double vote of confidence, one from coaches and one from teammates if you are selected to be a captain. Often teams will have some kind of a vote, though some coaches just pick the captains unilaterally. Uh, the Packers certainly do that. They, they vote on their team captains, and then Matt LaFleur takes the top however many vote-getters. So not only are you liked by your, your fellow players, the coaches think enough of you to agree with what the players say and award you that captaincy job. Really, they don't have a whole lot to do, but some teams use something like a council of players type setup. Like you may not feel comfortable just going to the coach on your own, say, hey, guys are worried about this, guys are frustrated about this, about the practice schedule, whatever that may be. So the coach sets up a council of players where the, you can just say, hey, Whatever complaints or questions you may have, run it by these guys. They'll bring it to me, and I'll handle it You know, however I can. I know that the Packers have done stuff like that semi-formally in the past, especially under Matt LaFleur, but I think um, that m- may be part of the captain's function, uh, either in Green Bay or on other teams. I've heard of teams doing that, but it's it's not really a formal sort of responsibility in terms of what guys um, actually do. Uh, one final question here. We'll take one on Joe Barry. I, I like the premise of trying to say something good about um, someone who may not be in everybody's good graces. And look, I'll never be the world's biggest Joe Barry fan, both what he's done in Green Bay and the process to getting to Joe Barry when you had this pool of potential candidates have bothered me. But that isn't to say that there aren't some things that he's done well. And our question, our final question today from Garrett Kay has to do with that. He writes, a question I'd like you to answer is about Joe Barry. I do believe he shouldn't have been retained as defensive coordinator, but playing devil's advocate, one positive from his tenure has been the incorporation of quote-unquote flyer players and turning them into contributors. Devondre Campbell, Rasul Douglas, Justin Hollins, and Rudy Ford come to mind. How much of their success do you think can be attributed to Barry's scheme versus the individual player? This is a really interesting question because, and I hadn't really thought of this before, but Garrett is right. The Packers have pulled together some cast-off players and turned them into really, really useful guys. Devondre Campbell, though statistically has had similar years to what he did in 2021 in the past, seemed to walk into a really ideal situation in Green Bay. Rasul Douglas, very similar as well, like even even more so than Campbell, or maybe even a little bit less than Campbell, did not put up like great statistical numbers in the past, but seemed to walk into a situation where he was really in a good spot. Justin Hollins contributed really well in the brief run that he had with the Packers last year, and Rudy Ford certainly got more of an opportunity than he ever did before, when he stepped in for Darnell Savage near the the middle portion or end portion of last season. So how much of that success is contributed to Barry and how much of it is just the individual player? In terms of scheme, 
I think you can put a lot of Devondre Campbell's success actually on the uh, the scheme um, that Barry runs. And this is not to say that Barry's scheme has made Campbell the player that he is. It's just Campbell, I think, is a uniquely good fit, or at least especially in 2021, was a uniquely good fit for what Joe Barry likes to do. Something that you see a lot, especially in the Brandon Staley wing of the Vic Fangio coaching tree, is a five-across defensive line with one linebacker in the middle of the field. Now, we know that the Fangio scheme likes to build from back to front, so it's all about the secondary first and then fitting in the, the front in front of that. This is kind of the epitome of that. Sometimes it's called a, a penny front, um, whatever you call it. Joe Barry did a lot of that in 2021. So you have three down linemen, two edge rushers on the outside, and all of those guys are going to be light right on the line of scrimmage. And behind them is one lone linebacker responsible for covering a lot of ground and a lot of area, covering guys, cleaning up, you know, running backs that come through the line, whatever. But he's got to cover a lot of ground and he's got to do it pretty quickly. Well, what do we know about Devondre Campbell? He's tall. And at least prior to the injuries that he dealt with in 2022 was pretty fast for a linebacker. He's got some athleticism, he's got some range, and he's good in coverage. Does that sound like somebody who's basically custom built to fill that role? I think so. And we saw that in 2021. Great range, pretty good in coverage, fundamentally sound, not making a lot of mistakes. The marriage of player and scheme there was just about perfect in 2021 and Barry I think deserves some credit for that, helping Devondre Campbell maximize his skills in a way that he really hadn't had an opportunity to do before. Rasul Douglas, I think, is kind of in that same mold. I think as well as he does in man-to-man situations, he's also really, really a good fit for a zone scheme. He's a long corner who's not necessarily gifted with tremendous speed. He's great at reading the ball in the air. Uh, He's great at reading the quarterback's eyes, great at making plays of the ball. You you see where I'm going here? All of those align really, really well with a zone scheme. So while it's the individual player, sure, it's also stepping into a scheme that aligns really, really well with your skills. In terms of the individual players, I think Hollins and Ford should get a little bit more credit than... um, Barry for their success in the Packers scheme, just because they were pretty much the same guy that they were in other spots. They just got chances to play more or or play at all, I guess, in Rudy Ford's case. Uh, he had never really gotten a long-term starting opportunity or a, really a starting opportunity at all in his time in Jacksonville. He was primarily just a special teams player, but the Packers decided Uh, basically out of necessity that he was going to play a little bit more, and he really blossomed when he was given the chance. I don't think he was really doing anything different than he'd done in the past. He just got a chance to play. Hollins kind of falls into that as well. It's not that he was doing anything different or his scheme was really well-suited. He was just an athletic NFL edge rusher who was available, and the Packers had a need, so they stuck him in there, and things things worked out pretty well for him. But in terms of scheme fit, In terms of what uh, Barry did with them, I think Campbell and Douglas are great examples of how a player and the scheme can work really well together. Maybe Barry has not always maximized his individual player's talents all the time, but I think those are two examples where the Packers, at least 
through Barry and through the acquisitions of those guys, found guys that really aligned with what Barry wanted to do really, really well. And it worked out for both sides. Uh, really, I guess all three sides, the Packers personnel people, uh, Joe Barry and the players uh, getting big opportunities and getting paid pretty well for it after the 2021 season in the end. That's all I've got for you on this episode. We didn't get to everybody's questions, and that just means that we've got more to talk about next time. But I hope you enjoyed this episode, and maybe it sparked some questions for you. And if you do have those questions, go ahead and reach out. Thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com is our email address. If you want to drop us an email there, go ahead. Check out the contact page at thepowersweep.com or just you know, become a patron and join our Discord server. Drop your questions in there. We'd love to, to answer whatever's on your mind. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and share it with someone you think would enjoy it too that's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.